Hey, this morning we begin our sermon series on worship. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 6 today. But this series is going to take us all the way through chapter 11. So this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 6. You can begin to find your way there on your copy of God's Word. I just want to give, in some sense, an introduction to the series that we're going to begin, uh, but as well to give an introduction on, on the passage that we have before us today. You know, when you think of worship, invariably, it's going to be largely formed by kind of your past experience with it and a lot of your personal preferences and, and your opinions. And so now most of you know this. I didn't grow up in the U.S., and so I lived you know, outside the U.S. for 11 years from 3 to 14, and for two years, Valerie and I served in Prague. And so when I was growing up as a child, we went to different churches, and every church we went had a whole different set of songs and a whole different way of, of presenting them, kind of their accompaniment. And so we had music, depending on which church we were from, that had more of an African feel, if the church had more people from Africa, or it had uh, more of a uh, Western European feel, if it was more of that. Or uh, one of the churches we went to was almost entirely American expats living abroad, and it really just felt like a Southern Baptist church. It was a piano and, and then somebody leading music. But in every single one of those, the music took a really different really different shape. But if you were to ask me and really to kind of press me and say, what, when have you really kind of felt closest to the Lord and what does that look like? Uh, I was actually thinking about this when, when we were singing this last song. Uh, Valerie and I had an opportunity to lead Bible studies all over the city uh, when we lived in Prague. And there's this guy named Pavel and, and Pavel would come and occasionally there'd be a guitar left in the room, you know, it had four and a half strings on it. And, and he would sing songs in, in Czech out of these uh, books. And and my check was really bad, and so I'd understand maybe every third word or whatnot. But, but you just had a sense of the presence of God in that place moving through. You know, it was such an incredibly moving time of worship. They're not the songs that I've chosen to listen to. There was no uh, theatric lighting in the room. There was a heightened sense of body odor in the room because uh, deodorant hadn't made it to Czech Republic yet. And so, but, but it was this amazing time where we're in there and we're just passionately worshiping Jesus and we're doing that with brothers and sisters from all over the world. So as we go through this series on worship, we're going to do it in a way that what I really want us to walk away with is this understanding that worship is primarily when we line up the interior of our heart with who God is. From that place and that place alone are we able to worship him. And so you may come this morning and you just think, man, I just cannot stand having drums or the electric guitar or whatever, or for me it's only this and it's never piano and organ, or for me it's only uh, unaccompanied singing. And those aren't conversations that we're going to have over the next couple of months because I think all of those conversations are ultimately wrong-headed. But what God is going to show us in the study of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 11 is that God is primarily concerned with the interior uh, posture of our hearts towards him. We're going to find that it's kind of this age-old issue. It was affecting those in Corinth, and they were splitting and splintering on a whole host of issues. And Paul kind of comes in, and he shows them this is how the gospel interjects, and this is how it speaks to the situation in which you find yourself. And chapter 8 really offers something that, that probably not very many of us have experienced, the subject of meat sacrificed to idols. And so none of us go to Walmart and walk through or walk up to the deli and say, I'm, like, I'm sorry, I want five pounds of ground chuck, not sacrificed to an idol. Do you got that? And they're going to say, well, this is all sacrificed to the Walton family, and so we don't have any of that. 
And so none of us, none of us have to go through this. And so this is one of these topics, one of these conversations that on, on the surface of reading it doesn't immediately look like it says anything to our situation and anything to kind of the way that we live life on a normal day-to-day affair. But I think on closer inspection, when we begin to break it apart, we recognize that the issues they're wrestling with aren't primarily just what do we do with meat sacrificed to idols, but how do we treat one another? And Paul comes through and he's going to talk about knowledge and he's going to talk about love. And so what does the intersection of those two look like? And you're going to find that in your pursuit of God, knowledge doesn't reign, love does. That in your pursuit of God, knowledge doesn't get to reign, love reigns, and it does so supremely. Let me read one through six and then we'll walk through it together as a body. Paul writes and he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul is addressing a subject that would have been really common there in Corinth. They would have all had some experience with this. But we find that the group was somewhat split. And as we make it into 7 through the end of the chapter, you're going to find that for some people, they were at home. They didn't have any qualms, no hang-ups on eating food that had been previously sacrificed to idols. And so, so what exactly is he talking about there? And see, kind of in the normal course of life, somebody would go into their temple, and so they go into a temple to Apollo or to Poseidon, and and they bring in some meat, they bring in some food, and they lay it down, and they say, this is my issue, here is my sacrifice. And so the temple priest would take it, and so he would begin to proportion it out, and he'd say, okay, this we're going to light on fire, and so they put it in a bowl, and they light it on fire, and he said, and this I'm going to take home, and I'll have a delightful little snack later, and this is your take home, and this is what you get to take home with you. But occasionally, because the priest wasn't able to eat all the sacrifice that, was, that were brought into him, they would take that and they would sell it in the marketplace and thus make more money for the temple. And so if you are out and so you're timer and you're out and you're buying food for the, for the senior adult gathering and you're kind of roaming the aisles, you wouldn't know uh, this was sacrificed to Apollo, this was sacrificed to Poseidon, and, and, and this over here was just, just a lamb that it was their time to give to the meal. And so you would go out, and, and outside of asking the question, you couldn't possibly know what goes to what, and probably uh, they're not tracking it all that well either. But within this group, what you'll find is that people are beginning to split, and they're beginning to take sides, and beginning to, to have this sense of, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And that's something that still plagues us today in the 21st century. So he says, now concerning food, offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. And so this one group looked at it, and they said, I, look, I don't know what the big deal is. I don't know why you're all that concerned. We know how all of this stuff works out. We know that there's no real uh, big deal. I don't know why you're all that concerned. I don't know why you're super bothered by it. We possess the knowledge. We have this, this, this cursory amount of knowledge. We have the, 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 a limited amount of, of exposure to this. It's just not a big deal. I don't know why you guys are getting your panties in a wad over this. Don't be so upset about this. This is just kind of what they said. This is first century parlance. Panties in a wad. There you go. 
And so we all possess the knowledge. And so this is kind of their line. Everybody needs to get on board. So Paul moves to address it. Look what he starts with. He says, this knowledge puffs up. This knowledge puffs up. He's not saying they're wrong. Do you notice that? He doesn't go in and say, look, you're absolutely wrong. Uh, you, you don't have all this knowledge. But in essence, he, he offers a commentary on their position. He says, this knowledge puffs up. And this idea that this, this uh, kind of attributing things to myself separates me from my brother or sister in Christ. If we are those who primarily center ourselves on being right, which is what knowledge does. It's the idea that knowledge seeks to be right. We begin to build barriers to those around us. We begin to build uh, obstacles to having relationship with, the other, with other people. So you begin to think, well, I don't, I don't possibly see how this works out. I don't possibly see this uh, in contemporary society. Well, let me just illuminate things for you. Let me just show you a little light on that. Over the last couple of weeks, our, 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 our little society, our country, has sought to, to pull itself in half. And largely, it is centered on which side that you want to take in, in a really small debate. Now, you'll say that it has large ramifications, and that's why everybody's so passionate about it. And I'm, I'm not going there. I just want you to understand something. Largely, what determines whether or not you look at it and say, I believe that Brett Kavanaugh was telling the truth, or I believe that Dr. Ford was telling the truth, is who you find to be the most believable. And so you're making some determination on the believability of their testimony. And so let's just say that, that he says he didn't do it and she says it happened. And so you're trying to metric this out on their believability. But you find yourself uh, more in the conservative camp when it comes to politics. Well, that's moving the needle and suddenly you begin to find yourself thinking he is more believable. But let's compound it. Let's make it more difficult. Let's say you yourself or someone close to you is the victim of sexual assault. Well, now you find yourself coming back over here and you're saying, no, she is more believable. None of us in this room, not a single person in this room can know definitively which one is right and which one is wrong. Or whether both are right and she's misremembering or something else is going on. No one in this room can know that. We're going to take 30 minutes this afternoon and look through the various members of our church and look at their Facebook feeds and look at all the posts they've had this week. And you'd think that the stinking world was going to end if everybody didn't believe their point of view and their perspective. Because we want knowledge to reign. We want our knowledge to reign. And when we do that, when we engage in this, and lost people see you, and they see you being bombastic and hateful and saying things towards a woman who, who seems to, on the basis of her testimony, have faced egregious sexual assault. And you post memes and terrible images of her and, and cast aspersions on, on, on the backstory of her life. Or you come to this man over here and you say, I bet he's done the same thing to many women on the basis that he's losing his cool. You've got to be kidding me. You can be right and absolutely wrong at the same time. You can be right and completely devastate and destroy your testimony at the, at the same time. Knowledge seeks to be right. Love seeks to be righteous. Do you see the difference? 
Christians, you have an amazing opportunity to step into the midst of this and say, man, what I hear from this testimony is that people are hurting, and none of the gospel speaks to hurting people. I don't know if he's telling truth or she's telling truth, but I know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is always true, and it speaks and brings healing to people who are hurting. Where knowledge seeks to be right, love seeks to grow others in righteousness. Look what he goes on to say. And opposed to this knowledge that puffs up, we find that love builds up. Jesus, speaking to his disciples in John 13, 34, says, A new commandment I leave you, that you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And we find that this command that he gave the disciples is on us to do towards others. And it's not just for people in the church, because that's difficult enough, right? But it's for all those we come into contact with, that we would be those who manifest, display outwardly in what I say, outwardly in what I do, in what I write, that I would display the gospel of Jesus Christ that bids all to come and to receive his love, and I extend his love just as I have received his love. Sacrificially is how he loved us. Brokenness is how he loved us. With no limitations is how he loved us. And so we have no ability, we have no right standing whereby to come in and and to create walls and barriers to others to receive his love and say, you can receive the love of God, but your life needs to look like this. You can receive the love of God, but wouldn't it be best if somebody from the political left shared it with you? And shame on us when this is our intention and this is our outcome. Love builds up. What does it build up to? Jesse read from 1 Peter earlier. and 1 Peter 2 has this wonderful passage. Starting in verse 1, it says, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. In essence, quit being you. That's how he began. And then come to verse 4, and he says, As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, yourselves, us, the people filled with envy and filled with slander and filled with hypocrisy and filled with malice and wanting to see my words wound somebody else and wanting to see my words be right and then be proved a liar and false. Us, when we come to him, he makes us beautiful. He says, I take you together like living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is what he intends for us to be. God doesn't intend for us to be the police of what's right and what's wrong. He intends for us to be a people who are in right sacrifices to him. If you spend all of your time and all of your energy going around and correcting people you think are wrong, you're going to have no time for doing good. Love everyone you come in contact with. Because love builds up into this radical unity. And I'm talking about excusing theological differences. We need to have charitable conversations with those we disagree. And can I tell you that personally, like, I look at this and this idea that knowledge puffs up, and I want to excuse all of the various ways throughout my life I've sought to grow in knowledge. I went to college, and that wasn't enough, so I got a master's degree. I finished my master's degree, and that wasn't enough, and so I'm wrapping up my Ph.D., the vast temptation in my life to desire to be right and to see everybody else around me wrong when it comes to my field of specialty is incredibly overwhelming. And I think of the people that I have just devastated by proving them wrong. People that when they think about their interactions with me, they don't say, Matt, such a loving person. They say, what a righteous jerk. 
If they're kind, they don't insert self-righteous. And we leave people in our wake proving them wrong and us right. But what if we were those who are seeking to build people up? What if we were those who, who desired and delighted to see righteousness well up in the lives of those around us? Do you see the tremendous difference we could begin to bring in those who disagree with us and those who agree with us? Let us be marked as people who endeavor to love, not those who endeavor to be right. So Paul goes in, and he's going to address in verses 2 and 3 this kind of the split and how these things develop and how these things make out. So he turns to knowledge first. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now, what is he saying there? And so here's a situation where you've got somebody, and they come in and they say, <clears throat> meat sacrifice to idols doesn't really mean anything. It's, it, it doesn't really affect me. You can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. So Paul says, if the assumption on your part is that you have mastery and you own the market on this knowledge, and in so doing are uncharitable to everybody you encounter, you, you prove yourself to be wrong. And the way that you come to know these things is not as if, as if it should be. As Oh my word, why is that so hard to say? I, I presume to know how to say it, and I can't. There you go. That's an enacted parable, if you're, never mind, okay. Useless information over lunch, perhaps. First uh, Corinthians thirteen two. I think Paul just nails this. Look what he says. He says, "If anyone, if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, if I'm not lacking in anything, if you ask me any question, I know the answer to it. And my faith is so great that I'm able to remove mountains. Look what he qualifies it with. But I have not love. I am nothing." If you step into a situation and you act like or are engaging with people in such a way as to demonstrate your complete and utter mastery over them, how you're right and they're wrong, recognize this. You've come to an incomplete and incorrect knowledge. You do not know as you ought to know. But he has this terrifically freeing statement. Found in verse 3, he says, but if anyone loves God, and, and, and i got to be honest, like if I'm writing this or you ask me what were to follow that, I say, but if anyone uh, loves God, he knows perfectly, right? But that's not what he does. You see, the, the, the amazing thing about what he does is he casts things in the present tense. He says, if anyone loves God. So if you sit here today and I were to go to you and say, Bert, do you love God? And you say, yeah, that's the testimony of my heart. And Jeff, do you love God? Yeah, that's the testimony of my heart. Trevor, do you love God? Yeah, that's the testimony of my heart. How are you living? You're like, that's how my life is being lived. That's the direction I'm going. I love God. In every encounter, I'm seeking to show that to those I come into contact with. I love God. Then he, then he appends to this, he says, if you love God, you are known by God. Paul writes it this way in, in 2 Timothy 2.19, he says, the Lord knows those who are his. Do you see the terrifically freeing and, and rewarding sense of this? If you love God, and I would argue you can't love God if you're not also loving those around you, but if you love God, he owns you. Loving God is a sign of belonging. Loving God is a sign of his ownership of your heart. Loving God is a sign of his gaze being transfixed on you. You are his child. First, you'd say that if you are one who 
constantly exalts in knowledge and, and corrects everybody else and tells everybody how their view of orthodoxy is false and is anemic and is weak. And this is how you go about your life. It would be very difficult for you to love God. Because what you're showing everybody around you is that you really love yourself. And you really love your opinion. And you really love for everybody else to share that same opinion with you. But you're not all that loving towards others. And if you're not loving towards others and those people around you, then I would dare say that you also cannot be loving towards God. Jesus' command to the disciples was that they were to love one another in a sacrificial way. So Paul picks back up in verse 4 the subject of, of this brief passage of Scripture, and he says, Now therefore to the eating of meat or food offered to idols. And so he takes kind of their party line there. Look at it. He says, We know that an idol has no, no real existence and that there's no God but one. So they take two true things. They take two true things. In essence, they were to say, look, if you take this bottle of apple juice and set it over here, and I were to say, holy apple juice, I pray that you would always make my throat to be uh, lubricated so that I don't do this, and that you would give me all of my desires and also not uh, affect my bladder to make me have to pee in the middle of a sermon. It has no ability to affect that change. Does it? Does it? It has no real ability to affect that change outside of the properties that are intrinsic to apple juice. If I drink too much, my bladder will need to be released. If I drink just the right amount, though, my throat will feel great as I speak, and I'll be able to continue going. But So he says this thing has no real existence. Now, to complicate this, when he gets into chapter 10, he's going to go on to say that there's an ultimate reality behind every idol, and these things are ultimately demonic. So we find that those things that are calling us to give our attention to can be demonic at their base, but, but not apple juice. It's just delicious. <laughs> so they take that one truth, and then he says, look, there's no real existence, and then they shorten the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Behold, O Israel, your God is one. And so they take these two ideas, and they shorten them, and so he says, look, this, this is a true statement. And then he adds on to it, verse 5, he says, For, for although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or, in our, or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords. He says, your statement is not true. It's just not full and complete. It is possible that we could know a knowledge that is faulty because it is incomplete. But he has this wonderful uh, kind of self-releasing, self-effacing statement that strips us of any ability to be a braggart or any ability to rest in my own knowledge. And interestingly, it's a statement of fact. Let's read verse 6 and be swept up in this worship of this one true God. So it says, on the one hand, there are many so-called gods, yet for us there is one God. I want you to see something. Paul is speaking and disagreeing with brothers and sisters in Christ, but assuming they're on the same page, calling them to join him. He doesn't say, for me there is this. He says, for us there is one God. He points to the exclusivity of God. He says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. He says, you need to understand something. The idols you look around at, you say, they just don't really matter and the people you look around at and say, they don't really matter. Their opinions aren't valid. 
They come from him. This one God whom we worship in spirit and truth, according to John 4, all things flow from him. The Bible opens up in Genesis, and it purports to give us an account of a God who spoke into nothing and created everything. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so he created all things in between. Look at this wonderful picture of purpose. So everything is spun into existence by him. And then he comes to us and he says, and for whom we exist. If you're here today, or you're listening to this, you exist for the one true God. You may not believe in his existence. You may doubt his reality, but you exist for him. You do not exist for you. Your life is not meant to be spent in the pursuit of pleasure or the correcting of wrongs. Your life is meant to be poured out as an offering to him. He spoke everything into existence, and you exist for him. But there's a turning to reality for how do we, how do we relate to God? How do we have relationship with God? This one God who spoke all things, this one God for whom we exist. And so he comes to it. He says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one God and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, through whom are all things. So how does this work? Well, within the creative endeavor of God, God spoke and Jesus created. God decreed and Jesus got busy spinning all things into existence. This is what he tells us here and what we read in the first chapter of Hebrews through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus calls to exist in him and him alone. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you exist through him. It's not some good work of your own. It's not some some, uh, positive inclination moving towards God. You exist through Jesus and through Jesus alone. There's not enough knowledge that you could attain to to merit God's favor. So Jesus took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for your sin and your trespasses, and he did for mine as well. And so the way to know and be known by this creator God of everything who spun all things into existence is through the agency and the person of Jesus Christ. There are right things we can know. The right thing we can know is the person, Jesus Christ, who gives us a perfect display of self-sacrificial love. And he calls and he bids and he beckons us to come and to know this one true creator God whose heart is about redemption and restoration. And to know him through the person of Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, the taking on our sins so that we might come to know him. And can I ask you something? My assumption is that if you're here week in and week out, that you are passionately pursuing or at least desiring to pursue God. And we're catching all of us at different places. Like some of us are doing well in pursuing God. Some of us feel like the world's just rolled over on top of us and we're really struggling to do our best. But it seems to me, it seems to me that a clear reading of this text calls us to abandon the pursuit of being right. calls us to abandon the advancement of any ideology outside of making him known. 
can I ask you that we would be a people who give careful and serious consideration to asking questions of the way we live our lives, us as individuals. I'm not asking you to judge the rest of the people in this room. Judge and know yourself. Are you more concerned with being right or loving those around you? And I am absolutely convinced that we could begin to see profound change in our lives and in the lives of all those we come into contact with if we would abandon being right for being loving. Can I ask that corporately together that we would spend some time praying for that right now? And that we would be a body, that we would be a people who would endeavor to do that. That you would give yourself to asking God, God, do I care more about being right or do I care more about loving the people around me? And I pray God devastates you. I pray he absolutely breaks your heart to the places and times where, you've, where, where he reveals to you that you care more about being right than being loving. Because I know when he devastates you, he'll make you whole. I don't want to see you brought low so that you just kind of wallow in the self-pity of despair. I want to see you brought low so that you could live your life to his purpose and so that he could make you to be a worshiper. We exist for him. If we exist for him, we might as well know what that looks like. Let me lead us in a time of prayer and then ask that that would be our prayer this next week. Would you bow your head with me? Father, this morning, there is this compunction, there is this desire, there is this overwhelming urge to want to be right. There's a time for being right. There is a time for defending truth. But God, help us to never abandon the, the preeminent pursuit of being loving. So God, I pray that you would work your power, the power through your Holy Spirit this week, and even right now, that you would search out those areas of our heart where love has no revealing sentiment. It's just rightness, and that's all we want. Would you break us to that? Would you alert us to that? Would you graciously move us towards restoration and healing as we seek to overcome that? We are limping pilgrims seeking to be more like you each day. <laughs> Help us to limp towards Jesus. Help us to love like Jesus. And help us to encourage those around us to do likewise. You are good and you do good. You are great and your name deserves to be praised. Would you call us to be worshipers? That we might delight in your presence and delight in being known by you and by you alone. Father, we submit these things to you in the name of Jesus. We all said amen. Amen.